if you have your Bibles, I hope you'll join me in Ecclesiastes chapter number 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. While you're finding Ecclesiastes chapter number 4, I hope that you were able to see our new missions wall when you came in the church today. If you came in this door, let me encourage you to stop in the foyer and look at our missions wall that we uh, just uh, put up. Uh, I want to thank Leanne Johnson and Dan Peterkin and Stephen Johnson for all their hard work in getting that up. Now, you may look at that map and you might say, that's a weird-looking map. I want you to know that that map in particular is proportional to what the actual countries look like. You know, a lot of times here in the United States when we get a globe or a, or a map, we get a map and we see the United States is the biggest country on the map. Well, <clears throat> that's a liberty that the, that the drawer of the map did. He's probably from the United States. But when you look at a true representation, you'll notice that America is slightly, a uh, great deal, a bit smaller uh, than other countries. So that uh, map that's out there is proportional to what it actually looks like. So that's a true representation of what the world looks like. I hope you'll stop by and check that out. And also underneath it are our missionaries. So we're adding missionaries uh, uh, every month, and I'm meeting with missionaries uh, on a monthly basis and uh, you check out those missionaries. Now, on those missionary profiles, you can pull those out. You, they're, they're not just one. You can pull them out and uh, read about and pray for our missionaries. You should have uh, noticed in Sunday school today, if you were in Sunday school, your Sunday school teacher re received a, a mission prayer book that we're going through the remainder of this year. And uh, each month it highlights a ministry or a missionary that we support here at Maysville Baptist Church. So I hope that you'll go through that with us and be praying along with us uh, for that. And uh, that's just a really good opportunity for us to pray. All right, so here we are, <clears throat> Ecclesiastes, excuse me, chapter number four. We are systematically going through uh, Ecclesiastes together. We know that Solomon wrote this. And we understand that it's very important, especially for our guests that are here today, uh, to understand the context by which Solomon is writing this book. Because if we don't, if we don't understand the context, we'll walk away with a very pessimistic view of this passage of Scripture. Uh, I've shared uh, with our church many times now, uh, guests, that um, this book of the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, has been noted as the resident alien of the Bible. And that's simply because it, it kind of sticks out as a, as a sore thumb, if you would, because it, it really is a very pessimistic book if you don't understand the context of Ecclesiastes. But let me say this, the book of Ecclesiastes is a book that's very much relevant from today because in essence, the overarching theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is satisfaction. Uh, Solomon, in his life, we know, again, he wrote three books of the Bible. We understand that he wrote the Proverbs when he was young, in love with the Lord. Loved, uh, excuse me, he wrote the Song of Solomon when he was young and in love uh, with the Lord and with his wife. And then he wrote the book of Proverbs when he was uh, listening to the Lord and his heart beat for the Lord. And then we know he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes as an older gentleman. Some say he was somewhere in his 80s. Some commentators say that. He looked over his life and realized that somewhere along the way, he went away from the Lord. He, he stepped away from his walk with God. And as he stepped away from his walk with God, we see that he performed a task or a, uh, an event in his life. He said, I'm going to take a journey. And I'm going to try to find satisfaction under the sun. Now, that term under the sun that's used many times in the book of Ecclesiastes means without God. I'm going to try to find satisfaction 
in this world without God involved. Now we understand that, and we've noticed all through this book that we've been journeying together, that he's drawn some conclusions just right along the way, but they're not his final conclusions. Now his final conclusion is not found to chapter 12. When he says the conclusion of the matter is... <clears throat> We must fear God and keep His commandments. And we understand fear God is the Old Testament way of saying give your heart to Jesus Christ. And then keep His commandments. And we talked a little bit about what those commandments are. So now here we are in, in chapter number 4. Now in verse uh, chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3, that actually goes up with the previous chapter. So that actually went with last week's uh, message. If I could wrap it up in a nutshell, I'd just simply say this. He, he concludes uh, chapter 3 by going into chapter 4 in those first three verses that say, look, there are two groups of people out there. There are the oppressed and then there are the oppressor. Neither one of those under the sun have any comfort. In fact, he simply says this. He said, I, I would rather be somebody that's never, ever been born because you've got those that are oppressed and those that uh, are the oppressor. And the one that is the greatest benefit is that one that has never been born. In essence, he's talking about purpose in life. Now, listen to me very carefully. God has a purpose for your life. You're not an accident. You weren't born on accident. You were born with a purpose for such a time as this. This day, this age, 2017, you're the right age at the right time when God wanted you to be here. So, David, you're 60 years old today. God wants you to be 60 years old today on this day for such a time as this. And it's our responsibility as a believer to live this life in such a way that it pleases God. That's your purpose. I mean, let's go ahead and get it right up there, right up front. The purpose of life is that your life glorifies God. And so if your life glorifies God, people will be attracted, not necessarily to you, but what you stand for. And what do you stand for? Jesus Christ. You ever had somebody say something like this? Uh, that, that guy's different. That, that girl's different. What is it about her? And then some smart aleck punk may say something like this. Oh, they're a Bible thumper. Or, or, or they're a Jesus freak. Or, or, or they'll say some smart aleck remark. But listen, what the world thinks might be smart, Alec, the fact of the matter is God has a purpose for it, and we got to be reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God has a purpose for you. Solomon then, if you will, he, he kind of switches gears, and he does something that, um, that really is fascinating to me. Solomon cannot help but write a proverb. He can't help it. He wants to live life under the sun. He's got this test that he's going through, DeWitt, and he's doing everything in his power to fulfill his life outside of God. But really, the fact of the matter is, he can't even go four chapters without writing Proverbs. And so he's going to write some Proverbs here in this text. And as he writes these Proverbs, it's very, very fascinating because he's going to be dealing with the topic of choices. You have some choices to make. As a matter of fact, we got up this morning with choices. You got up uh, with whether, whether to get up when the alarm went off or, or, or not to get up when the alarm went off. I'm grateful as I look around today. Thank you for getting up. I'm so grateful you got up this morning. Now, for those of you that are watching my live stream, I've got your number. I know you hit the alarm, the snooze button, and I'm glad you're watching, but you made a choice today. In regards to choices, not only we choose to get up, we also chose to get dressed. We chose to come to church. Uh, we chose uh, uh, what to have for breakfast. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to choose whether or not to go to work. It depends on if, the, I guess, the Falcons win or not. Uh, but we're going to make some choices. 
Solomon says in relationship to choices in, the, in verses 4 all the way down to verse number 16, he wants to talk about three choices that he's noticed. And he's going to challenge us in the arena of these choices. So let's look and see what Solomon has to say in regards to these choices. If you found your place, would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse number 4. Look at what he says here in the text. Again, I considered all travail and every right work that for this a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than both the hands full of travail and vexation of spirit. Then I returned and I saw vanity under the sun. There is one alone and there is not a second, yea, he hath uh, neither child nor brother, yet uh, is there no end of all of his labor. Neither is his eye satisfied with riches, neither saith he for whom I do labor, and bereave my soul of good. <clears throat> this is also vanity, yea, it is sore travail. Two are better than one, because one have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow, but woe unto him that is alone when he falleth. For he hath no another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have, it, then they have heat. But... How can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better is a poor and a wise child than an old foolish king, who will no more be admonished. For out of his prison he cometh to reign, whereas he also that is born in his kingdom becometh poor. I consider all the living which walketh under the sun, with the second child that, st that shall stand up in his steed. There is no end of all the people, even that all have been before him. They also that cometh after him, or come after him, shall not rejoice in him. Surely, this is va vanity and vexation of spirit. You may be seated this morning for prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name and through the blood of Jesus, I do pray the best that I know how I yield myself to you. I ask only to be used as your mouthpiece uh, to preach your word this morning. Lord, the last thing on earth we need is another sermon. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that as we go through this text together, that we would see that it is a message from the very throne room of God. And Lord, as we consider these three things that you tell us in your word today, I pray that it would strengthen us, draw us closer to you. Lord, if there be one lost here today, I pray today would be the day that they receive Christ as Savior. Uh, Lord, that's the greatest choice we could all make. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for your wisdom, your guidance, and your words. We love you, and we thank you again for this day. Blessings upon it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. None of us in here uh, want to disobey the Word. I mean, that's why we're here. We, we want to obey the Word of God. And Solomon, in this text, you've noticed, he really basically talks about three different things. He, he talks about achievement. He talks about, in this text, uh, he, riches. He talks about, in this text, popularity. And of those three things, he says it's vanity. It's vexation of spirit. Uh, the word vanity, we know, is a Hebrew word. Uh, it's the word havel. Uh, it means uh, smoke or, or breath. It means uh, meaninglessness. It means 
absolutely, utter, utterly nothingness. It's here for a little while, and then it kind of vanishes away. And Solomon, upon his people observing, if you will, he looks at people and he says, look, these three things, achievements, riches, and popularity, if these things are fading, if these things are vanity, if these things are vexation of spirit, is another Hebrew word which kind of means spitting in the wind. He says, if these things be true, then there's got to be an opposite. There's got to be something opposite that we do that will please God. Well, we've got to remember, first and foremost, the conclusion that he's coming to is you can't find satisfaction in this world apart from God. So if you're going to find satisfaction in this life and you're, you're going to uh, not find yourself pursuing life just for achievement purposes or you're not going to pursue life just for riches or you're not going to pursue life just for popularity, then by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we must be born again and understand the purpose that God has created us for. And He's created us for the purpose of bringing glory and honor to Himself. And through that means, we share the gospel with a lost and dying world. That's why we've got our big wild game dinner coming up here in two weeks. What's the goal there? We're not trying to make a name for ourselves. Listen, I could care less if we ended up in any paper. I could care less. I, I could care less if we ended up on any publicity whatsoever. And if we end up in any publicity whatsoever, I hope, if you get interviewed, I hope that you'll share this. We're doing it for the glory of God. That's why we do what we do. And by the way, just let me go ahead and say this. Now, when we're done, we're, we're anticipating and praying for 700 souls to be saved. That, that's what we've been asking God for. We know that if we have 700 or more people saved, we know that approximately about 100 of those are going to be in our Jerusalem. Those 100 that are in our Jerusalem need a visit. And we have our regular Monday night visitation the Monday after the wild game dinner. If you don't come to any other visitation throughout the course of the year, please, I'm asking you to come to that visitation. On a regular Monday night visitation, we can make 50 visits. So we know we're going to have 100 visits on that Monday. Listen, we're praying for rain. we got our umbrellas out. So we need you to be there in order to help us make those visits. Will you commit? Will you go say, I'm going to be there, Shane. I'm going to go ahead and be there, Pastor. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to be a part of that visitation. We're going to have a great, great time Together, We're not going to have any teaching. We're going to come, get our visit, go make that visit, and we're going to encourage those people to continue their journey as they have been converted to Jesus Christ. Now we want to see them discipled for God's glory. So we think about this issue. If we're not doing it for popularity, if we're not doing it for achievement, if we're not doing it uh, for riches, and we're not none of those things, then what are we doing it for? Well, these are the choices Solomon says. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice in the text is found in verses 4, 5, and 6. Solomon says, choose contentment over achievement. Choose contentment over achievement. Now, what, let me just say this. What Solomon is not saying, Solomon is not saying, uh, don't achieve anything. No, 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 no. Listen, we ought to have expectation. We ought to have achievement. We ought to go to college, guys. We ought, we ought to do well in school. We ought, I mean, all those things are true. Solomon says, yeah, we got to do that. But that's not where we find our satisfaction. Once we accomplish the achievement that we set our hearts to do, that's good. We ought to be uh, satisfied with what God has given us. 
He tells us here in the text that there ought to be some contentment as opposed to uh, this issue of just following after achievement. Uh, look at what he says here in verses 4, 5, and 6. He says again, I considered all the work, all the travail, and all of every right work, that is the righteous things, I, even the righteous work that I've done, or, or that I've seen done. And for this, a man is envied of his neighbor. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit. The fool hath folded his hands together and eateth his own flesh. Well, that's a vivid picture, isn't it? Thank you for that, Solomon. And then in verse 6, Better is a handful, one handful, with quietness, than both hands full of travail and vexation of spirit. So what are you saying, Solomon, in this arena of choosing contentment over achievement? He says, look, there are three types of people in this world. And he shows it to him right here. He gives us a description. Verse 4 is one type of person. Verse 5 is another type of person. And verse 6 is another type of person. Who are these people? Let me show them to you. Number one, the first person is the, conf conf uh, excuse me, the competitive person or competitive people. We, th we know them today, David, as workaholics. Uh, they're workaholics. Uh, people compete with one another in everything. In fact, he actually uses that word ever. You see it in verse 4. He says they're competing in everything. Now, he's not talking about this individual instance. He's, he's talking about this broad meaning. The point that he's making here is just simply this. Much achievement is the result of a desire to be superior over others. That is to say that a lot of work that gets done in the United States and around the world is done to be better than somebody else, not to bring glory and honor and praise to God. We are to work in our workplace in the arena of contentment knowing that we're working for God and not the man. You realize that, right? In your job that you think is so monotonous, in your job that seems to be so meaninglessness, there's, there's such vanity in that job, such vexation of spirit in that job, you're working for God. So I ain't working for God. You ought to know my boss. He's a heathen. Well, he may very well be a heathen. But the fact of the matter is, by you working for the Lord and knowing you're working for God in the job that you're in, you might win that boss to Jesus. I'll never forget, as long as I lived, I worked at the Advanced Auto Parts in the distribution center. Now, y'all see me playing with my watch. Y'all know what that means? Absolutely nothing. It doesn't mean anything. But I can recall working there at Advanced Auto Parts, and I was in ministry. I was going to Bible college. As a matter of fact, a church called me, and I was part-time, and I came back to Atala, Alabama. I was working there at that Advanced Auto Parts distribution center. And you know what they called me? They called me preacher. Uh, really? No, they did. I mean, I just they couldn't get away from it. And so I can recall in, re in this uh, situation that I was in, many people would come up to me, and I wouldn't even ask for it. I wouldn't publicize it. I didn't come in saying I was a preacher. I didn't say any of that. I just went to work. Somebody asked me, they said, uh, what, what, is this your only job? I said, well, I, I also am a, I'm a youth pastor at a local church uh, here. Well, that's all I had to say. Then, boom, all of a sudden I become preacher. And then once you're the preacher in a, in a situation like that, man, they were coming up to me, handing me prayer requests, asking me for counsel at lunch. I got, had more ministry opportunities in that job, listen, I had anywhere. Now, I knew that working in that position, I clearly understood in regards to, to this that there was a competitiveness <clears throat> that was going on inside Advanced Auto Parts. Everybody wanted to be the top dog. Everybody wanted to get up to the next level. And there was a tremendous amount of competition 
inside that arena. And they were competing in such a way that they'd say, oh yeah, I'll take more overtime, I'll take more overtime, I want to get up to the top, I want her job, I want his job. And there was this competition that was going, but watch this, competition wasn't the problem, it was the attitude that was the problem. And their heart attitude was that they were wanting to be better than somebody else to put them down. I'm the best person for this job, not them. And man, there was backbiting and there was all kinds of ugliness going on uh, there. And did you know this? Research has actually shown that workers suffer from what they call professional envy. Nine out of ten people suffer from professional envy. And Solomon is just simply saying that we all want to be noticed. We all want the attention focused on us. Therefore, we envy one another and we compete with one another in such a way, whether we care to admit it or not, that we want to be better than the person we're working beside. And what Solomon is simply saying here, in regards to this individual, that's the workaholic. There are competitive people out there. But then watch this. He takes it a second, a second step in verse number 5. Not only do we see competitive people, but we also see complacent people. Did you see it in verse 5? Look at what he says. He says, The fool foldeth his hands together and eateth his own flesh. So if verse number 4 is talking about work of ho- workaholics, then verse number 5 is talking about none, none other than lazy people. He says, Here are these complacent people, and these complacent people simply fold their hands and they eat their own flesh. Now this language is very fascinating. The language here in this verse, uh, uh, in dealing with these lazy people, is just simply saying they become cannibals. They're so lazy they begin to eat themselves. This is, this is called hyperbole. It's a hyperbole. He, he's making fun of lazy people. And he's just simply saying by these lazy people, and he's mocking them, and he just simply says, look, they're, they're going to cannibalize themselves. They don't raise any crops, so they've got to eat something. What do they end up doing? Eating themselves. Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 10 and 11, the Bible says this, Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, so shall thy poverty come like one that travaileth, and thy want like an armed man. So here's Solomon, even coming alongside in Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 10, he is reaffirming what he is saying here in this, uh, in this uh, Ecclesiastes passage, and he's saying, look, lazy people end up dying a vicious death of consuming their own flesh. Uh, we saw this happen in America uh, back in the uh, 1960s. Uh, you'll recall those in the 1960s, had a, they had a head and a gut full of those people from the 1950s, and they said, we're sick of this, Uh, we ain't going to do this anymore. They bailed out, and they claimed the title of flower children. How many of you remember flower children? All the old people. Bless your heart. Everybody gave up. They mean, listen, they gave up on everything. They gave up on ambition. They gave up on, on, on cutting their hair. They stopped taking baths. They just sat around, traveled the country in Volkswagen uh, buses, and they hummed kumbaya. This is obviously craziness. As a matter of fact, when we draw back and we look at it, and we thought, this is not what God wants us to do in the arena of accomplishment. God wants us to be content where we're at. As a matter of fact, I don't know if you notice this or not, but verse number 5, he uses that word fool. You see it there. 
I would circle that word or, or highlight it or, or do something with it to call attention to it because this word fool is a fascinating Hebrew word. When we think of the word fool, we can't help but think about the word idiot. We think about idiot or a buffoon. They're just absolutely an idiot. But did you know that that Hebrew word fool has a very specific definition? The, speci the specificity of that definition, if you would, is simply this. The word fool is someone who denies God, scoffs at wisdom, and laughs at eternity. That's what an Old Testament fool would do. As a matter of fact, when we look in the New Testament, that's what a New Testament fool would do as well. They would absolutely deny God. God, God doesn't exist. Or they would find themselves, if you would, scoffing at wisdom. You give your money to the church. <laughs> you think that's wisdom. <laughs> Or they laugh at eternity. You think you guys are going to live forever. Remember what Solomon said in chapter number 3. Solomon said, God has put eternity in your hearts. And so there is a war going on in the heart of the fool in knowing that there's eternity locked in his heart. And in his own selfish denial, he says, no God, no eternity, no wisdom. I'm going to live my way and he's going to die and go to hell. So really this word fool and foolishness is really a, a theological stance. And so this stance that, this, that the fool goes to is one to which he shows contempt for God's laws. Now God, watch this, intends for you and I to work. He intends for us to work. And so in this intention of God to work, He wants us to work and work together and He wants us to have a biblical, healthy work ethic. He doesn't want us to be workaholics, yet at the same time, he doesn't want us to be lazy. Remember what Paul said. Paul told the church at Thessalonica in chapter 2 of Thessalonians, or in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone will not work, neither let him what? Shouldn't eat. So, he, he, listen, he's saying, you ought to work. And not only you ought to work in the world, you ought to work in the church too. There ought to be a job. I, I loved it. I visited with a man this week. And as I was visiting with this individual, uh, he was looking for a church. And, and I, I just said, man, I'm praying for you. I hope you'll come visit us. And he just simply said this. He says, I'm not looking to join a church just to join a church. I'm looking to join a church so I can get to work. I said, well, bless God, we've got more work and we've got people. Why don't you come on help us? We need to be working for God. Let me, can I challenge you today, church? Listen to this. If you're here this morning, and you don't have a job in the church, I strongly, strongly challenge you to find out what God has gifted you and get involved in the work of the ministry. It will be a tremendous blessing to you and also to your pastor. Uh, Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, whatever you do, do your work heartedly. Do it with all your heart and do it as for the Lord rather than for men. So that job you're working, sir, that you don't like, that job you're working, man, that's giving you all the frustrations and headaches, remember, you're doing it for Jesus. Work for Jesus and not the man. If you'll work for Jesus and not the man, you'll get a greater blessing, a greater blessing. But what you need is a paradigm shift. You need to get rid of that stinking thinking and start looking at it through God's eyes. Number three, there's a third uh, group of people here that he sees, found in verse number six. So he says, there's these competitive people, they're workaholics. There's these complacent people, they're lazy bums. And then in verse number 6, he said, there's contented people. Contented people. Look at what he says in verse 6. Better 
is a handful with quietness than both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Now, here's what Solomon is doing. Solomon is striking a really sincere, true balance between workaholics and laziness. At first glance, when you look at it, it seems that uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 6 contradicts uh, verse 5. However, we've got to recognize that, that, that uh, verse 6, like verse 5, is also a proverb. He can't help himself. He's writing from a position of a proverb. Which means the takeaway from that, when we walk away from that and we look at it through that lens, through the lens of a context, he's talking about a balanced life. He's not talking about being a workaholic. He's not talking about being lazy. But he's talking about being balanced. And this balanced life that we have incorporates and has to do everything with the purpose that God created you for. So the comparison is between uh, anything with rest and anything with work. Uh, this is not an argument in favor of laziness, but it's a call in our lives to live a balanced life. Can I ask you this question? Are you living a balanced life? So how might I know? Are you happy? Are you happy? Well, so I didn't think God wanted me to be happy. No, God wants you to be happy. Do you know that? God, God didn't want us, when he says fear God, he don't want us walking around in such a way we think that he's got his finger on the smite button ready to drop a piano on our head. Oh, God, i got to do right. He's gonna, man, he's going to wear me out. Now listen, if you get out of bounds, he is going to wear you out because he loves you. But God wants us, listen, Jesus even said it, the Son of God said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. God wants you to have an abundant life. He wants you to be happy. God loves us. And I know the, the, there's no more greater happiness in this life than obeying God and His Word. And so he says, here are these contented people. These contented individuals are individuals that are living this balanced life. Solomon is just simply saying, rather than grasping for so much that you have to be a workaholic to get it. Or to, or it would rather be best to be contented with less. It's better to have less and enjoy it more. Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6, if you'll recall. When he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. What is great gain? Godliness, loving God with all your heart, having your quiet time with Jesus, getting the marching orders for the day, putting on the whole armor of God, and attacking hell with a water pistol filled with the blood of Jesus. Competitive people think that money will bring peace, but they don't have the time to enjoy it. Complacent people think that, they're, think that by doing nothing, that's going to bring them peace. But it's that very lifestyle that destroys them. Yet contented people enjoy both labor and the fruits of their labor, and they live a balanced life where they balance rest and also work. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 16 and 17 says this, Better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therein. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a stalled ox and hatred therein. We find here... That, Paul, uh, that excuse me, Solomon, in writing the Proverbs and also writing the book of Ecclesiastes, is in essence in line with what he's saying. He's simply saying that we need to choose contentment over achievement. 
Number two, let me show you the second thing in verses 7 through 12. There's a second thing he says here, and he's, the second thing that he says is it is better to choose relationships over riches. Choose relationships over riches. We see this in verse 7 through 12. So in these verses, he reminds us that, watch this, people are our priority. People are our priority. If you're too busy for the people that matter most in your life, then watch this, you're too busy. Uh, Solomon uh, talks about how he looked under the sun and he says there was a, a man there, a certain man, and he didn't even have any dependents. He was all alone. There was no son and there was no brother. And yet he did, that didn't stop him. He labored, he worked, and he worked, and he worked trying to get these riches. He says his eyes weren't satisfied with the riches and he never asked, and who am I laboring and, and, and depriving myself of pleasure? Why am I doing it? He never asked that question. He just put his nose to the grindstone and he went after it and he says this is not only vanity it's a grievous task you might know somebody like that you ever know somebody like that they're all alone man they don't have anybody and then they just they, they are absolutely burning the candle at both ends listen to me very carefully maybe you're here today and maybe that's you maybe it's a dad or maybe it's a mother I'm here to tell you that extra ten or $20,000 that you might gain at the end of the year will not mount up to a hill of beans if you lose your children. You've got to stay focused. And in regards to this issue of staying focused, what Solomon says, instead of being a lone ranger, instead of being a maverick, instead of getting out there and, and doing everything you can all by yourself, you've got to remember, even the lone ranger had Tonto. We need friends today. As a matter of fact, we need godly friends today. Uh, godly friends that will help, help us move and, and, and encourage us and keep moving towards a life of, of godliness and a, a life of the love for the Father. And so watch what he does here. Do you see what Solomon does? He starts in verse number 9, and now he's going to say several proverbs about friendship. You can't do this alone. And in this regard, in thinking about we need to choose relationships over riches, look at what Solomon says about having these relationships with friends. Number one, the first thing he says in verse 9 is friends bring about good results in labor. When you find a godly friend that will walk with you in your labors, it will produce good results. Look at what the Scripture says in verse number 9. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. The results of two people that love God are reward. Now watch this. Does this mean that those two people are going to get along all the time? No, there are going to be disagreements. As a matter of fact, we've got a staff, got a staff, a, a pretty large staff here. And bless God, if everybody thought like David thought, we'd be in trouble. And matter of fact, if everybody had the same personality that I got, we'd be in real trouble. But we've got different mindsets, different personalities. Thank God we're all saved. And, and here's my position. If you're not passionate about the ministry that God's called you to, you need to get your resume done trimmed up a little bit and find a new place to work. Because, listen, if you're here and you got a passion for senior adults or, or, or the people of our community, you're working in the arena like Judy's working in, bless God, she ought to be passionate about that. And thank God she is. If you're going to be the evangelism guy around here, like David, bless God, if you ain't worried about lost people being saved, then we're going to have us a real problem. 
And so we sit in staff meeting and somebody might raise their hand and they get upset because we got this going on, we got that going on and blah, blah, blah. What about my ministry? What about this ministry? I thank God for that. I thank God that we've got a stall big enough to have a lot of oxes and when you got a lot of oxes and a lot of stalls, you got a lot of stuff. Look at that person beside you and say, I'm glad I came today. All right. Where am I at? Here I am. Number two. Okay, so he says, friends bring about good results, number one. Number two, friends pick up one another in trouble. That's what he says in verse 10. Look at what he says. Notice the scripture. Here's what God's word says. For if they fall, he's talking about a good godly friend. If they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. America is the land of the lonely. In fact, you might be here today and maybe you're feeling lonely. We're so lonely, we even got a declaration of independence. And while that might be good for a nation, it's not healthy for individual people. We ought not to be lonely. Men especially have this type of mindset. I'm a macho man. I can do it alone. And if you don't think I can, catch me outside. How about that? <laughs> I mean, they have this. I mean, this is what they think. I mean, just meet me out in the parking lot. What's going to settle this? Hey, you know, one of the things that attracted me most to Maysville Baptist Church was your men's ministry. Is your men's ministry? It attracted me, and I know God's calling. God calls, and He's called. He called me here. But but I looked at you. I studied you. You studied me. I studied you. I said, man, this is unusual. They got this very large men's ministry here. Why? And I'll tell you the reason why. We've got to have a healthy, active men's ministry, because whichever way the man goes, that's the way the family's going to go. Now, I don't care what the world has to say. The world has done its best to throw genders in a bag and shake it up and throw it all out and say, okay, the woman is the head of the house now and blah da 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 and la da da That's a message for another time. But I'm here to tell you we've got this thing all messed up according to God's Word. And if you want to have a healthy, happy, healthy home, then you've got to have a home where the dad is the spiritual leader of the home. Now, Mom, I ain't got anything against you. In fact, I thank God. I'm pro-woman. I married one. I'm pro-woman. Married the best one out there. I am. I'm pro-woman. So was Jesus. But I'm here to tell you, God is a God of order. God is a God that brings order into a chaotic world. And the order that He's brought to this chaotic world in relationship to the family is the dad ought to be the head of the house. And so we got to have a healthy, strong men's ministry to help our men understand a few things. The reason why we invest in men so heavily is because we want them to understand, number one, relationships are valuable. Last week I, I ended my sermon with the $100 bill illustration. You'll be glad to know I took that $100 bill home, I ironed it out, and I gave it back to Jason that Sunday night. But the reason why I did that illustration is because I wanted you to see the value of yourself. For those of you who weren't here, I took that $100 bill and I asked uh, who wanted it. 
And uh, a lot of hands went up. They wanted that $100 bill. And then it was crisp. I mean, it was brand new. And I crumbled that thing up. I said, now who wants it? You raised your hand. I said, okay, well, watch this. I threw it down, and I stepped on Now who wants it? You were here. You remember. Oh, I'll take that one, Pastor. It doesn't matter you stepped on it. Well, how about this? And I did that number, and you said, ooh, that's gross. Who wants it? Oh, I do. I don't care. Why? Because that $100 bill had value. So, too, you have value in God's kingdom. God has created... Listen, God don't create junk. And the greatest thing that he loves is a broken vessel that he can put back together and use for his honor and glory. And so we got to have friends. we got to have friends surrounding us, picking each other up. We need to understand that men need to be taught that relationships are valuable. Number two, we also need to be taught as men that we can trust one another. Are we going to let each other down? Yeah, I'm going to tell you what. You put your trust in me, I'm going to let you down. But it's not because I don't love you. But we've got to understand that as men, we can trust one another. Even when somebody lets us down. Number three, we've got to understand that real men share their feelings. Say, oh Lord, are you serious? Let me just tell you this real quick. If God didn't care about feelings, He would have made you without them. You chew on that for a few days. Number next, real men need to learn from one another. We need to learn from each other. I ain't got all the answers. You ain't got all the answers. God's got the answers. And He may share them with us and He may not. He may say, you know what, you just need to wait. You know, He says yes, no, and wait. But we need to make sure that we can learn from one another. Can I ask you this question? Listen to me, dads, men. You're here, maybe you're married, married, you know, it doesn't matter. Are you plugged in? Are you learning what the Scripture says about real men? Say, well... Well, I'm not really an outdoorsman. I, you know, that over there on Wednesday night, that's outdoorsman's ministry. And, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really, I don't hunt, I don't fish, I don't do whatever. It's not about hunting and fishing. It's not about that. It's about leading your families. It's about letting God sit in the preeminent seat of your heart. It's about moving in the direction of the Lord. And leading your family. If you're not here on Wednesday nights, here's a challenge for you. Let me, you need to be involved. And let me just say this to our ladies as well. Ladies, let me encourage you. We've got a space for you on Wednesday night. Bless God, we put you all over there in that little room over there and you done outgrowed it. they got 60 ladies coming to Bible study. They're, they're having a meet in here for the next few weeks on Wednesday nights. You come be a part on Wednesday night what God is doing. Friendship. Friends. Friends pick each other up. When they're in trouble. Number three, very quickly, i got to hurry. Friends warm one another in, cold, in a cold world. You see it in verse number 11? You see what Solomon writes? He talks about there, if two lie together, uh, they can keep warm. This has no sexual innuendos in it whatsoever. It's important for you to understand. He's, he's not referring to any sexual innuendos. But let me just go ahead and say this. If you're married, here's the question. Does your spouse have cold feet? Mine has polar feet. And just to let you know that my wife, who has polar feet, it's one of the most difficult acts of service to allow her to put those cold feet on me. It's sheer, 100% unconditional agape love on my part. (laughs) 
Now, in regards to this, it's a simple principle. He's just simply saying that when we're together, when we're together, we're warm, we're hot. We're hot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we want to apply it in that context, that would be appropriate. When we are together, when we're working together, we can do things that we would never be able to accomplish alone. Uh, 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 An illustration of this is what's going to happen on February uh, the 16th. Man, we can't do... David, you can't do that by yourself. But together... Together we can see those souls saved and lives changed with a broken heart for lost people. You take two coals, two coals, if you like to cook out. and You take those two coals, you just, you know, set it aflame, let them burn for a little while, let them get nice and hot. And, and while they're together, they hold in their heat. But you separate those two coals, what happens? They extinguish themselves. Why? Two is better than one. Not only is it a principle of heat in regards to science, it's also true with our lives. I pray that when we come together on Sunday mornings as friends, we'll warm each other in this cold world. That when we leave this place, we'll burn hot for Jesus Christ. Number four, friends hold up one another in adversity. Did you see verse 12 very quickly? And if one prevail against him, two shall, stand, shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Solomon closes his thoughts in this section just with these words. He just simply says, look, We are stronger together than we are if we're all apart independently. So when we think about that by way of applications, why don't we bear one another's burdens? Why don't we lift one another up? Why don't we share in the friendship that God has given us? Well, one of the reasons why we don't is because we would rather choose riches over relationship. And Solomon has said, when you do this, this is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all smoke. It's like spitting in the wind. There's absolutely nothing to it. So Solomon challenges us. Choose relationships over riches. And then the third thing, very quickly, and I close. He says, choose influence over popularity. Choose influence over popularity. You see what he says in verses 13, 14, 15, and 16. In these four verses, Solomon resorts to another type of storytelling. He gives us a parable. And so Solomon is reminding us that popularity is fleeting. Therefore, we are better to choose influence over popularity. And when you think about this issue of influence over popularity, that is a very difficult thing to do because we all want to be liked. We all want to have an accolade. And he's not saying that we ought not to give those out. We ought to give accolades. But listen, he, what he is saying here, the point that he's making here, although this young man may rise up from the bottom of society to the top, not everyone is going to accept him. Not everyone is going to appreciate him. Therefore, since it's impossible to achieve full acceptance in the arena of popularity, he says it is absolutely vexation of spirit. Why? Because he pursued popularity instead of influence. What he's simply saying here is this, and let me use this illustration if I could. Maybe this will make better sense. I came here not to be popular. I came here to be influential, to influence us, to fall in love with the Word of God, to fall in love with Jesus Christ, and attack hell with a water pistol filled with the blood of Jesus. Snatch as many people out of hell as we can. And I'm going to be honest with you, that's not popular. Why? Because you stand up here and you've got to say things like this. If you die without Jesus Christ, you will wake up in an eternal hell. Now you preach out all over the land and see how popular you become. 
No, 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 no. It's not about popularity, it's about influence. Influence must always trump popularity. Why? Because popularity is temporal. Uh, you know, here's some people say like this. Uh, uh, how y'all doing up there in Maysville? Well, the Lord's blessing. He, he's been very good to us. How many folks y'all had saved this year? Uh, this year, if we count those that hadn't been baptized that are awaiting baptism, uh, we're over 55. Over 55 salvations and uh, professions of faith. And uh, we have about 13 awaiting baptism. We're praying and getting that squared up. Uh, the Lord's been very, very, very good to us uh, this year. Well, they'll say this. Well, you've been there two and a half years. I guess the honeymoon's over. Y'all know when I came here, I didn't marry you. I didn't marry you. No, no we're married to Jesus. And since I didn't marry you, you can't divorce me. As a matter of fact, you know, I just realize this, I don't work for you, I work for Him. Now, God has set governances around us in such a way that, God forbid it, but if I, if I do something stupid, you can fire me. And you need to. But if I'm standing on the Word of God and I'm preaching the truth of God's Word, it's not about popularity, it's about influence. And I want you to hear me, listen, your pastor wants to see more people saved. I want to see them come to know Jesus as Savior. If you're here today, listen, you're in the safest place you can ever be in. Right here at Maysville Baptist Church. But listen, you're also at a turning point in your life that if you don't accept Christ as Savior and you die without Christ, you will go to an eternal hell. But I've got good news. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. And you can make the greatest choice of all. It's a, it's a greater choice, greater than achievement, greater than riches, and greater than popularity. It's knowing that Jesus Christ died for your sins and that He rose again on the third day that you might have everlasting life. Why? Popularity is fading. You just asked Donald Trump. Today, in closing, is the Super Bowl. Winning the Super Bowl... Uh, is the professional dream for just about every NFL player. And I got to thinking about this issue. Is it the money? Is it the money? Is that why they want it? Is that why they want to play so hard? Is it the money? And when you look at it and study it, the money the, that they make, the winnings, or the winner's earnings from a Super Bowl appearance, amounts to less than a full game's check on the average NFL player. Now you might think about that and go, well, that's still a million dollars. But it's not about the money. When you think about it, you say, well, maybe it's about that Vince Lombardi trophy. That thing's pretty nice. Well, as nice as it is, you know, they can't take it home with them. I mean, they can't. They can't. I mean, this goes uh, somewhere else, maybe in the locker room or wherever, at City Hall or whatever the case may be. But they don't take it with them. It's not the trophy. No, the reason why they compete is because of the fame. They, they want the fame, they want the respect, they want that moment of supreme glory. Uh, today, it will be one of the most televised events all, all over the planet. I mean, it is, it, it's as big as the Olympics, if not bigger. And yeah, they do. They get a, they'll get a ring. Whoever wins uh, is going to get this ring, this Super Bowl ring. And oh, it's going to be such a prized possession. But I'm going to tell you what, that, that's fading too. You think about this. Did you know this? I didn't know this, but I, I, was, I was reading and studying. I found this little thing, and I, I thought, man, that is very interesting. Listen to this. Did you know that Charlie Waters of the Dallas Cowboys, found, he found out that his Super Bowl rings were fleeting when all five of his Super Bowl rings were stolen from the closet of his home? Joe Gilman, 
who won two Super Bowl rings as a member of the 1974-1975 Pittsburgh Steelers. He pawned them all for a few dollars after being caught up in a vicious cycle of drug addiction and homelessness. Another former Steeler, Rocky Beeler, or, or, or Beiler, sold his four rings to cover divorce and bankruptcy procedures. The Cowboys, Thomas Henderson, had his Super Bowl rings uh, seized to pay back taxes. Former Raiders All-Pro quarterback Lester Hayes sold his to pay for dental work. Mercury Morris of the Miami Dolphins sold his rings to raise money to clear his name during a drug trafficking case. That ring, a symbolic of months and years of hard work, crowned by a season at the top, is as fleeting as the glory it's supposed to represent. The hype may be spectacular, the TV ratings may be the biggest of the year, the commercials may cost millions and millions of dollars, but the glory is nothing more than fool's gold. Its luster is quickly tarnished and it disappears. Houston sports writer Steve Campbell said this, and I quote, One of the dirty little secrets about the Super Bowl is that the winner's high often has less of a shelf life than a container of cottage cheese. Achievement, riches, popularity, they'll all expire just like cottage cheese. Why? Well, because these pursuits are temporary. And Solomon, in his wisdom, who cannot help himself in writing these Proverbs, simply just says this. Why don't you choose contentment? Be content over what you have. Why don't you, if you would, just choose to invest in relationships and not those riches? And why don't you choose influence? Choose influence over popularity. But you know, the greatest choice that you and I can make this morning is what we're going to do with Jesus Christ. That's the greatest choice. Because Solomon makes his way through this book, and as he makes his way through the book, he talks about this and that and the other. And he talks about vanity, vexation of spirit, all blah, blah, blah. And you've got to remember, he's all talking about all this stuff under the sun. And so he comes to chapter 12 and he says this. You want meaning in your life? You want purpose in your life? You want influence in your life? Uh, you want to choose contentment? You've got to stop trying to fulfill it underneath the sun. You've got to remember the God, the Creator, he puts it in chapter 12. Remember the Creator of your youth. And then he goes in there uh, in the latter part of chapter 12 and he says, here's the conclusion. Here's the summation of everything that I just said all through this book. It comes down to two things. Number one, fear God. And number two, keep His commandments. The word fear God in the Old Testament, again, means to trust Jesus as Savior. Put your faith in Christ. And number two, to keep His commandments just simply means this. Jesus said a new commandment that I give to you. We are to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbors as ourselves. He's given us a commission to go into all the world and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have a mandate that's been given to us as believers. We don't have time to fuss and bicker about this issue of what color the carpet's going to be or 
what color the walls are going to be. It, all that is fleeting. All that, it doesn't matter. We're not trying to be popular. We're not trying to be rich. Uh, we're not trying uh, to, to go about this world with any other thing other than influencing people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this question. Sir, ma'am, if you were to die today, where would you spend an eternity? Are you living your life under the sun? Are you living your life in such a way today that you find yourself as a workaholic or maybe you find yourself as a lazy person? Whether or not that's not the case, but you're trying to invest in achievement instead of giving your heart to Jesus. You need to fear God. You need to get saved today. Or maybe you're here. And maybe you're doing everything in your power just to get rich. Maybe you've got the biggest 401k in the world. Let me just say this to you, ma'am, sir. Listen, that ain't going to get you to heaven. Or maybe you're here and maybe you're pursuing popularity. You don't get to heaven on popularity contests. You only get to heaven through Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. I have good news for you today. You can trust Him. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. And you may be here and say, Pastor, I want to do that. I want to fear God. How might I do that? I think Paul put it best in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. Paul said that if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And so if you're here today and you'd like to fear God, you'd like to be saved today, can I ask you this? Would you be willing to commit your heart and life to Jesus right now, right where you're sitting? So how might I do that, preacher? I'm going to ask you to do exactly what Paul said. To the best of your ability, right where you're sitting, between you and God, would you cry out to Him and say something to Him like this? Would you just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. But I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And this morning I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to come into my life. And cleanse me of my sin. I repent. And trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus name.